All right. Well, this is a great day for me. It's a great day for listeners. The homie Soleil is back. Buddy, welcome. So I've been wanting to ask you, because you're at home with family, did you get to eat anything good? What's the what's the food scene like in Rockford? Like, I have no idea about that place. Yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing really that great. It's mostly fast food and a few kind of sad restaurants. But, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> the first meal I ate while I was there was Beefaroo, for instance. It's kind of the off-brand Arby's, but uh, you know, gotcha. <laughs> that's what we got. Um, and that's why you learn how to cook. I mean, that's 100% it. It's that whole going back to small towns where there's like fast food spots across the street from fast food spots and you kind of just learn to navigate. I'm so happy that you're back. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. Today, we're talking to Dan Pashman, the host of the Sporkful Podcast. He's here to tell us all about his new pasta shape and how it's better for sauceability, forkability, um, all the <laughs> abilities, the mutant powers uh, than all the other pastas. <laughs> but why does this matter? Why are we talking to this guy, Justin? I mean, it's always nice to hear someone that's passionate about a topic, you know, a food topic. And me personally, I have no vested interest in any kind of pasta shape. I'm like, whatever. I'm not picky. I also don't understand things like toothability. You know, context clues can help, but... I'm just not deeply invested in this kind of stuff, but I, you know, if somebody wants to talk about it and they, they create something that they say is the best of whatever, I want to hear about it. Like that's, that's where I'm at with this. Right. In this interview, Dan is a lot like the dad in Close Encounters of the Third Kind who makes Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes <laughs> and just becomes hyper fixated on it. Except in this case, it's about pasta and not aliens. That's so perfect. So if you want a glimpse of that madness, check out this interview. Tell us about pasta, Dan. It seems to be <laughs> the thing that has brought you to everyone's attention lately. And you had this really great mini series on the Sporkful about making this pasta, Mission Impossible, which is very fun to listen to. If our listeners have not checked it out yet, highly recommend it. You are a pasta geek. I realize, and I've read you, like, write about it, and, and I've heard you talk about it so many times, but in short, just what is the deal with you and pasta right now? <laughs> it's Yeah, it's uh, it's been a crazy few weeks that was preceded by uh, by a pretty intense few years, but basically, I, uh, I decided a number of years ago, well, first I decided I wanted to tell a, a big ambitious story on the Sporkful podcast. It was just sort of it was sort of born out of creative ambition. Other people were making these big podcast stories, and I was like, "What would, what would my version of that be in my voice? And and what would what would a food story version of that be?" You know, thought through a bunch of options and settled on I'm gonna I, I should create a food. And I decided that food would be a pasta shape, a new pasta shape. I thought people would be excited about it. I thought they'd be curious. And I thought it'd be fun. You're right now, I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore pasta nerd. I didn't actually think of myself that way when I started out. I thought of myself as just a guy who likes to eat pasta. But I set out, and it, it's taken a number of years. I, and it was much harder than I expected. I didn't want to like just create, like I could, I could have 3D printed one single piece of pasta and taken a picture and put it on Instagram. I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be real. So I so that was that's what made the whole journey a lot more difficult. I wanted to to get to not only create a new pasta shape but to actually get it made and actually be able to sell it. 
and share it with Sporkful listeners. And that was kind of where uh, where things got complicated. So you're talking about listening to these uh, po- multi-episode, you know, in-depth podcast projects. And that partly inspired you. So you're telling me the world got a new pasta because of podcast competition is that partly rooted in this that's amazing yeah i mean i don't know that i i don't know that i think of it as much as competition as like creative inspiration you, you know i think you know you work in a creative field you other people whose work you respect and admire do something incredible and you're like wow that was so good like i've never done anything like that i wonder if i could try to do something like that you know and it fuels you to to push yourself to try to do, you know, I mean, I've been doing the sport for 11 years and I like to think it's gotten better over those 11 years. I find it very rewarding to be like in a creative environment. And so other people do things that inspire me and push me to try to be better and do better. And hopefully then someone else will hear something I did and they'll do something better than what I did. And that's cool too. And I'll be excited to hear it. That's amazing. And so to follow up that, uh, you know, for, for people who know pasta from a distance, like the assumption is made that there are an infinite number of pasta shapes, but is it more like there's a finite number or how many are there out there? Like, it, h- how are we supposed to see this? Because in my head, I think there are just so many. They're just all over the place. But is that not the case? Yeah, I mean, there's not an infinite number, but the exact number is a bit difficult to discern because, you know, uh, we can't say for sure that there's not like one Nona on a mountaintop in Sicily, <laughs> you know, who's the only one in the world who makes a certain shape that no one's seen. Um, but as part of my series, I did I did talk to Maureen Fant, who translated the Encyclopedia of Pasta, which is kind of the uh, seminal work on this subject. It's like the Bible for my purposes in this project. Uh, and she said that there are about 350 shapes of pasta that she cataloged for the encyclopedia uh, that go by about 1,200 names. Mm. So often you may have a shape that's basically identical, but in one region they call it one thing, and in another region they call it something else. But, you know, a lot of those are are variations on a theme. The most obscure ones are the handmade ones because you can kind of do anything with your hands. Um, they're only made in small batches. The the better known ones are the ones that have that are able to be made through some industrial process because obviously they can be mass produced, so they end up getting shipped and spread more widely. You know, and so when I was setting out, one of the first things I did was just I ate every pasta shape I could get my hands on. <laughs> I I scoured the the New York metro area to specialty stores and just tried to buy every shape, even you know ones I had had before but not for a while, and ones I never saw in my life. And I was trying to sort of be methodical about like cataloging attributes. Like, what do I like? Do I like tubes? Do I like flat? Do I like curls? Do I like ruffles? Do I like ridges? And trying to sort of be scientific about what I like. And the big thing that I came away from that early testing was that I. I really like ruffles. I think ruffles are underutilized in pasta shapes. There are a few that have them, but not many. Ruffles do two great things. First, they increase surface area, so they pick up a lot of sauce, and they have little crevices that that hold sauce and other bits of things. But also, they have a very unique kind of playful mouthfeel. Chewing on ruffles is fun, and there's nothing else like it in pasta. And so I said, I want ruffles. That's very chip-like, too. When you think about the chips that do really well with dip, as well, like ruffle chips, obviously. Right, right, 100%. The the face of a ruffle potato chip versus a flat potato chip, like it might be whatever it is, an inch and a half, two inches across the diameter of the chip. 
could be the same, but a ruffle chip has twice as much surface area mm. in those two inches. So that's twice as much seasoning and twice as much crunch. But but it's also the other thing the ruffles do is that they're intersecting with each other at right angles. And so you have like resistance to the bite. So you have more crunch. It's not just flat. You have like, it's like biting into eye beams of potato chips. Mm. <laughs> um, and I have these three metrics that I came up with to judge pasta shapes, which is like forkability. So how, how easy is it to get it on the fork? Sauce ability, how well does sauce adhere to it? And tooth sink ability, which is how satisfying is it to bite into it? And so I wanted to try to make a shape that would have all those things in one. In, in your like journey to taste all the pastas and check out the tooth sink ability of them and their forkability and all of that, um, what are the worst? Thank you for using the correct scientific term. Of course, term, so of course. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what the worst pasta shapes are. Ooh. I mean, look, this will be controversial. I, I, I mean, angel hair is terrible. Mm. <laughs> um, it just goes from zero to mush when you cook it. Um, you know, wagon wheels and bow ties don't cook evenly. They're kind of gimmicks. Fusilli, I think, doesn't cook evenly. Um, and the whole series starts off with me saying that our Mission Impossible series starts off with me saying that I don't think spaghetti is very good. It's not the worst, but it's overrated. It just doesn't do that much. Like it, it's one of the it's like the original pasta shape. Because, but it's but that also means that it's very primitive. Okay. It hasn't evolved in hundreds of years. All right, hear me out. If you are okay. a little dog and you are behind an Italian restaurant with another little dog, <laughs> like, can you eat the same cascatelli noodle and then have a little kiss? <laughs> oh, this is a big Pro question. Prob <laughs> probably not. Probably not. I, but those kinds of uh, dogs were not in my target audience, I'll admit. <laughs> Fair. But you're right. In, in that scenario, Soleil, I will, I will give my, I'll tip my hat to you. In that case, you want spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> this is big time podcast journalism that's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The hard hitting questions. Right. But, uh, but you know, but but I, but I do think that that lady in the tramp scene, it's part of the romanticism around spaghetti. But it also just shows you like how stuck I think our ideas of pasta shapes have been. And that was kind of, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a trained chef. Uh, I'm not Italian. I'm, I don't consider myself an expert on pasta. I mean, I've learned a lot in doing this series. I'm more just someone who loves to eat pasta. And I kind of just felt like a lot of the shapes out there kind of there's something faulty with them. And and there's a lot of tradition surrounding them. And I just felt like I wanted to try to bring a new perspective and see if there was, you know, I wanted to try to keep. What I love about pasta, there's a comfort food element, there's nostalgia. I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to be outrageous for the sake of it. But I also thought that maybe I could try to combine different components in a new way. It is very nice, Dan, to hear you say that spaghetti is terrible. I've been on the bandwagon <laughs> as a spaghetti hater for years. People, Thank you, Justin. People, Thank you. Ex people have not listened to me. They <laughs> ridicule me, and now I feel justified. God, I can't, I'm got, I can't wait for my friends to hear this podcast. There you go, people. It's so funny. Ever since I said that, people have been coming out of the woodwork. They're like, <laughs> yes. yes, at last we can say it out loud. We're coming out of the shadows, the, the spaghetti haters of the I'm world. I'm telling you, there are plenty of us. So, all right. So, yeah. so let's think about this. Like, we're, we're talking about your journey with creating this process. So- you know, I, I'm curious if like, do we forget as we get older, how important like that sense of like childlike wonder about pastas, how important that is 
on anyone's journey to figuring out what they like, be it eating it or creating it. Because earlier, Soleil and I were talking about, you know, like being kids and eating dinosaur shaped pasta. Have you held on to that feeling like as a kid where, you know, this is really fun. Like I don't have to just like one thing. I can figure out what feels good and tastes good. Like do people lose that that sense of wonder as they get older? Uh, uh, yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, it's something I, I try to, combat in food and life in general, you know, uh, just sort of always remembering to appreciate simple pleasures and like just, um, you know, taking the wonder uh, all around us. And like food is a great opportunity for that. So I'm always excited to discover something new and, and, um, you know, and, and my kids, I mean, I have, I have two daughters they are eight and 10 and, and my wife, Janie, like they were all a big part of the pasta development process. You know, like they were my focus group. Um, <laughs> And it's been very rewarding, honestly, since the series came out. So many people have told me that they listen with their families. And I, I figured kids would like the series because, you know, kids like pasta. I didn't really anticipate how much, like what a chord it would strike. There's something about it. Uh, one of my friends who has two eight-year-old twin boys, she told me it was like that listening to the series was the first, it was the first show of in any form of media that their whole family listened to all together and all enjoyed. It wasn't just like a kid's show that the parents were suffering through. Mm-hmm. Um and and that, that that meant a lot, and and I think that that's part of it. You know, I did once have Weird Al on the Sporkful, <laughs> and uh, one of the things he said to me that always stuck with me. He said that people's favorite Weird Al album is always the album that they heard when they were a certain age. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very profound. It's about and and it's maybe ten, twelve, an age when you start to question authority and realize that like grownups actually don't really know what they're talking about. Mm. And then Weird Al comes along and sort of like, you know, throws a pie in the face of everything you thought was cool. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what this pasta has done for the kids who are excited about it is like they thought like these are the rules. These are the pasta shapes. And then the idea that someone would come along and be like, no, actually, like you can just make your own thing. I think might have like and I can't say that I knew in advance that this would happen. I just sort of like lucked into it. But I think that it's kind of had a similar impact, which has been super exciting. And, um, you know, I. I try to never lose that in my work, that sort of like glee at discovering something new and, um, you know, also just like appreciating the basics. Dan, it's interesting that you mentioned like the, the you know, your kids being part of the, the focus group and the creation of it. And like my nieces and nephews have ripped me over like my sandwich making skills for them when they were little, like depending okay. on how I cut it or whatever. Mm. How <laughs> critical are kids when it comes to testing pasta like in the process how are they how are they as pasta critics uh not great <laughs> i'll be honest <laughs> i mean i love all kids and my kids in particular but i mean they're not exactly the most discerning eaters <laughs> um my kids will eat pretty much any pasta shape you put in front of them that being said like some kids who like friends of mine my friends kids who've tried that this the new shape like do seem to have picked up on some of the finer points. And I'm not sure if it's just because they heard me talk about it in the series or because they identified it. Honestly, it's kind of like getting creative feedback from anyone, which is like you have people who you'll trust and they'll give you feedback. And sometimes you know that they're right. You need to address the issue to to take into account their feedback. But other times you're just like, you know what? I just feel like what I'm doing is right and I got to <laughs> stick with it. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Solejo, and we're back with Dan Pashman. So, okay, like anyone, it seems like anyone 
with their mindset to it could make their own pasta shape if they dared. Of course, like all you need is dough, right? And like some other stuff, I would assume. But like, can you sort of condense down for the listeners? Like what is the other stuff? Like what do you need to do this? Well, so in my case, I basically needed two things. First, I needed a dye, D-I-E, pasta dye. It's like the mold for the shape, essentially. You remember the Play-Doh factory? You got that little star-shaped hole, the disc, and you push the dough through and it comes out shaped like a star. That little star-shaped disc is essentially a die. And that's basically how pasta is made. You make dough and you push it through a hole that has a certain shape to it. So I needed to get a die make manufactured. And then I had to bring it to a pasta company. I had to convince a pasta company to work with me because I wasn't going to like lease a factory. <laughs> I had to get the die made and bring it to the pasta company and get them to make the pasta using the die. Uh, all of which uh, took much, much longer than I expected. It was much, much harder. Um, I mean, like drove me to the brink of tears on more than one occasion, as you'll hear. There's only one pasta die designer in America working today. And so he's busy, uh, especially <laughs> once COVID hit. And he has like Fortune 50 pasta companies who want dyes from him like yesterday. And I, here I am over here like, can you make my little? And he's like, you know, call me in two months. Um, and then there was no pasta companies that wanted to work with me. I thought like, why wouldn't a big company like spend what, what for them would be a minuscule amount of money to take a shot on this crazy idea? And maybe it pans out. No, they weren't interested. So I had to find, I was able to partner with this company called Sfolini. That's more of a mid-sized company. They're based in upstate New York. They make great pastas, and uh, and they were fantastic to work with. That's what I basically needed. But the major obstacles you can't just extrude dough through it. Like the Play-Doh example is overly simplistic. You can't just make any shape. Okay, certain shapes are physically impossible. So I mentioned how I wanted ruffles. I also decided I wanted some kind of tube element. So I thought ruffles in a tube. Well, it turns out that that's impossible because when the dough gets pushed through the die, the movement required to create the ruffles would crush the tube. Mm. So these were the kinds of obstacles that I was running up against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the closest thing that I can imagine is um, the shape where it's sort of like cone-ish. So it, it makes kind of a tube and then it's got ruffles on the edges, but it's not like a closed cylinder. Oh, right, right. I know that one, right. Some people call it trumpets. I forget what the Italian name is, but it's kind of, it, it almost looks like the snack food of, of a bugle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then actually the huge breakthrough was because I was like sketching on graph paper just all different kinds of ways to get ruffles and a tube or a half a tube into the same shape. And one of the ideas was, so it, it, as I said, in, in Mafalda or lasagna, you have this main strip and then the ruffles are sticking off out, out in either direction to the sides. Mm -hmm. So the ruffles are along the edges. And I said, what if we were to basically cut them off and fold them in, but basically attaching the ruffles at a right angle to the main strip, making them perpendicular? It was my idea to move the ruffles and do that, but I really did not understand what all the things that that would do. And it ended up like unlocking all these incredible powers that I <laughs> lucked into that I really can't take any credit for at all. The two ruffles being right, running vertically next to each other creates like a canyon in between them. Mm, and mm -hmm. all this sauce gets stuck in between, goes in there, and then the ruffles kind of act as teeth. So the sauce goes in, but it won't come out. So it has incredible sauce holding powers. The other thing that it does is that that right angle spot where the ruffle strip meets the flat strip, it cooks just a little bit less. And so you get textural variation. In that spot, it's like a little bit chewier, more tooth sinkable, and then the edges are a little bit softer. You wouldn't want too much variation, but it's like just enough. 
and there aren't many right angles and pasta shapes. So those different things came together to create something very unique that I, you know, and like I said, I, I kind of can't believe that it turned out as well as it did. I, I, at a certain point, I was like, we just got to finish the shape because I want to tell this story and I'm excited to tell the story. And then I kind of got obsessed with making the shape as good as possible. And then I kind of, you know, couldn't deal with it anymore because it was literally years <laughs> of sleepless nights and stress and my wife being like, you're an idiot. Why are you doing this? Like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> Understandably. But then sort of the last few changes we made ended up making a huge difference. And we ended up with this shape and I was like, oh my God, this is actually really good. <laughs> so uh, that was an exciting moment <laughs> when I realized that. Yeah. So I think the, the challenge, right, for uh, extruded pasta too, is that it's kind of inscrutable if you aren't an expert at it. Um, the closest sort of analogy I can think of is like you see someone making, you know, folding up a piece of paper to make like a snowflake, right? And then they're cutting these like random sort of what seems like random mm. bits of paper out. And then all of a sudden it's Batman and you're just like, wait, mm -hmm. how? Right, right. Like there's so many little um, crevices and so many tiny little editorial details in this bronze die that can generate like wildly different outcomes. And it's so hard to yeah. wrap your head around. Mm. Totally. And, and and it's microscopic. I mean, maybe not microscopic, but I mean, the the margin for error for a die designer between getting this shape to curve just right and having it go off the rails is, is you know, fractions of a millimeter. Um, I was blown away to learn how ruffles are actually made. I had no idea. Ruffles are made by having the spot where you want the ruffle, the entry, the dough entry point in that little spot is bigger than for the rest of the shape. So it's wider, so more dough flows through that, that little hole than through any of the rest of the parts of the shape. And it creates like a funnel inside. So the dough rushes through to that part. You have dough flowing faster in that spot. And then as it comes out, it can't move that fast because the rest of the shape is going slower. And so it buckles. Mm -hmm. mm. You, you, have, you have dough rushing out of the die and it keeps buckling. And each place where it crashes into itself and buckles, you get a ruffle. Each one of those ruffles is a buckle of the dough crashing into itself as it comes out of the die. So it's it's not by actually shaping the dough like a ruffle that you make a ruffle. It's by regulating how fast the dough flows through the die at in different parts of the shape. Right. Oh, wow. I hope I'm explaining that clearly, oh, wow. but like that blew my mind. So, okay, all of this is a lot. Um, and I think on your show, you mentioned how much it all costs to like put together is tens of thousands of dollars, right? Yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, we did an initial run that ended up being about 3,700 pounds, 3,700 boxes of pasta. Oh and um, personally spent a little over $9,000 of my own money to get that made. Um, and then Sfolini, the pasta company, they spent 13000 and change. So the total was like 22000 and change to get 3,700 boxes. Now, some of that was like startup cost to get the dye manufacturer. That wasn't you know, so, so we we lost money on the first thirty seven hundred, but it was a real risk. My my wife Janie was understandably skeptical of the whole endeavor, especially when she realized that you know, I was going to be spending some of our money uh, until that very last minute. It was like if you had asked me what I expected, it would have varied every fifteen minutes. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. there some some moments I'd be like, "This is great!" Like I think this is going to be a big hit. And other moments I'd be like, "I don't know." Like you know, it's just so hard to get people to pay attention to anything, and then to get people to spend money on something. To, you know, like it's a lot. You know, like we're all busy, we're all distracted, and yeah, I didn't know how it would pan out, but it's turned out that it went very well. Right. I mean, okay, as someone personally who balks at buying kombucha like for four dollars. Right. Because I'm like, I don't know if I have that kind of money. Like, how the fuck 
Do you decide <laughs> that you're going to drop that much money on this pasta shape that instead of just like eating it quietly at home and never talking about it? <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I decided, you know, it was uh, initially I didn't. First of all, I didn't set out to spend that much. <laughs> uh, and, 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 <laughs> Initially, I thought that I was going to spend about five thousand dollars, which is still a lot, um, but much less than what I ended up spending. Uh, but you know, when it spread out over years, and that you kind of you're like in for a penny, in for a pound at a certain mm -hmm. point. Um, <laughs> so it's like a sunk cost at a certain point. Right. Well, like I spent five thousand dollars to get a dye manufacturer, but it turns out that that it didn't make a good shape. Mm -hmm. And so, look, I, I could have just stopped there and released a, and set and released a story on the podcast about how I tried to make a shape and failed. But at that point, I felt like I'd been working so hard on it. And I felt like I was close to a good idea. I really just felt like we needed one more change, which was to make the whole shape thicker, much thicker. Mm. But that's like in the in the microscopic world of dye manufacturing, that's a huge change. So it was like another four thousand dollars to have the dye essentially remanufactured to add half the thickness of a credit card mm. to the shape. Um, so you know, if you had told me, it's probably good that I didn't know at the beginning what it was going to cost because then I might not have done it. <laughs> I would be lying if I didn't say that I also thought like maybe this will be a business or at least like I thought like I did feel like probably I'd, we'd be able to sell enough that I would make a good chunk of the money back. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I would lose all that money. Like if, if, if I, I knew someone would buy some of the pasta, you know, so like every, every time someone buys one box, I get a little bit of that $9,000 back. So, you know, I, I, I felt confident enough that I didn't think that, that I, I, that I would get some of the money back. Mm -hmm. So that also sort of like calmed me when I was stressed about that. <laughs> So at this point, right, like your pasta is sold out for weeks at an end. Um, did you make the money back? Uh, yes, we made the money back. The kids' college fund is back in the black, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> and, uh, oh, you know, there, people can still order it. It's just like taking us a while to fill the orders. Um, I've learned a lot about supply chains in the past few months. <laughs> uh -huh. um, one of the one of the biggest holdups is the boxes. Mm. Um, you have to order boxes. Like You have to order the paper and get the boxes manufactured. And that's like a two-month lead time at least. Um, and we didn't want to order tens of thousands of boxes not knowing if anyone would buy the pasta. So then when everyone bought it, we had to place an order for more boxes, but it's like two months before they'll come. Mm. So um, so we're still taking orders and we are filling them and there are some boxes coming in and uh, you know we'll just keep chipping away until, until everyone has their pasta. Oh my God, it would have been so sad to just have tens of thousands of boxes and nothing to show for it. You could have made a robot. I guess. I, <laughs> <laughs> right. It could have been like a great art installation somewhere. <laughs> right. Very Ozymandias. Like. Yeah. I, I would have become like a performance artist who only works in the medium of, of unused <laughs> pasta boxes. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I've seen this pasta everywhere. You know, Pioneer Woman's website, The New York Times, Food and Wine, Cooks Illustrated, and, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker posted about it. It seems. Yeah, that was great. That was bananas. Yeah. It, by all rights, it's a success. It's, it's a success beyond what I ever could have dreamed, for sure. It's been a very exciting few weeks in the Pashman household. <laughs> is um, this going to be your I thing? Like Are you just going to go whole hog into pasta now? Like, can you just give up the podcast? Is it over? I, I No. <laughs> I mean, you know, I love doing the Sporkful podcast. It's hard for me to imagine uh, not doing it, you know, at least not in the near future. Um, I, I have to figure it out. Honestly, that's what I'm in the process of figuring out right now. Um, there's a different, I mean, I'm learning a bit about the industry and figuring out what my options are. Um, you know, we're actually preparing an update episode on the Sporkful where I'll sort of detail the options and try to figure out what I'm going to do. But basically, you know, 
it would be nice to make some money, but I'm also not interested in like quitting the podcast or in doing the thing that necessarily has the highest earning potential. Like I would be very happy to hang out with my <laughs> with my kids and make some money from the pasta shape on the side, you know. So, but the flip side is I don't want to just like give it give over control of the shape because I care a lot about the quality of it. And I feel like my name's attached to it. And, you know, now I've made all these promises about what it is and how good it is. And I don't want someone else making it and me not to have any say in it. And then they're going to be like, what? You know, Pashman's shape sucks. And it's like, well, you know. <laughs> so I'll have to, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure what, what the path forward will be, but I'm trying to figure that out. You know, that's so funny. I mean, I want to ask you an existential question if you are Please. cool with this. I love existential questions. Do you think this would have taken off the way it did if you weren't Dan Pashman's workful guy? Well, there's no question that having the podcast, which is a, pl a, a platform, helped. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I was just a guy, no, it would have been much harder. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know what other people perceive. I don't think of myself as being like a very influential person in the world of food media. Um, you know, but the sporkful, you know, I don't even, I, I, I still feel weird thinking of myself as a member of food media mm -hmm. because I'm not, I, I feel like every, almost everyone I know in food media has some kind of professional food training. They're like somehow a trained chef or, and I'm not, and I'm really not that knowledgeable about the hot restaurants or the cool chefs or cooking techniques or ingredients. I'm really more like an, a radio audio professional who kind of stumbled into food. So I, I still feel much more at home, like put me in a room full of audio nerds and I will feel much more comfortable than in a room full of like food writers mm. where I still feel like I don't really know what to say or like, am I using the right fork for this dish? I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, you know, and so, um, so my, but, but, but I understand that perhaps other people do very much perceive me as like an insider in the world of food media. It's just not how I think of myself. Um, but there's no question that having a podcast with a loyal following helps, you know, and, uh, and, and also just the fact that, that I've been doing it for so long. Food podcasting in general is not huge compared to like comedy podcasts or daily mm -hmm. news podcasts in, in the in genres. But the Sporkful has a lot of name recognition, probably just because I've been doing it for so long. I've been doing it for 11 years. And over over all those years, I've done, you know, I, it's been featured in various places. And and like, you know, I did a thing on Radio Lab a few years ago. Or a thing, I did a story with Planet Money. Or I was, you know, and so a lot of people, I think, have heard of the Sporkful, even if they're not loyal listeners. So when I do something new, it's like it's a lower bar. Uh, you like you you know you both know you're members of the press. If someone pitches you something, and it's and and if, if a person if the person attached to it is someone you've heard mm -hmm. of, even if you're not immersed in their work, you're more likely to be like, oh, let me look at mm -hmm. this. What is this? So there's no question that the fact that I've been out there for a while and have this platform was a big advantage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it seems like it was just so fascinating that. You know, not everyone is friends with Mimi Sheraton, for instance, or, you know, knows folks in like who can email me directly and like tell me about, you know, your pasta. So I think that part of it is really interesting as a, a segment of just how how harebrained ideas succeed, too. It's not right, you know, like right. there's a lot involved structurally that um, I think is invisible to most people. Um, not to say that it's invisible to you, but I think it's just like talking about that is also a really important part of this, right? Yes, 100%. No, I mean, I, there are plenty of advantages that I had in launching this product that uh, that some other people wouldn't have the benefit of. Um, you know, like 
having a podcast and a platform to begin with is an advantage. Having been doing what I do for a long time and knowing people like you too and other folks that I can email that I work with, um, you know, being a white guy helps and it certainly helped, especially, I mean, you know, there are better efforts now around representation than there were, still a long ways to go. But when I was starting out, uh, it was, you know, I'm sure that it helped and continues to help. Um, and so all of these things are advantages that I've had that um, that not everyone is lucky enough to have. Um, so, you know, I'm, I am freely acknowledge those advantages and try to do my best to use this Borkful platform to, um, you know, to try to pay it forward in whatever way I can. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I think it also highlights a really interesting nuance here when we talk about journalism, right? Um, because journalism, you know, the, at our newspaper, for instance, like we are barred from selling things in our capacity as journalists. Um, that's sort of our basic ethical kind of boundary here. Um, and I have to be careful, for instance, if I want to donate to like, a, I don't know, Black Lives Matter and like, do I can't really advertise that. Um that sort of thing, because it's like a conflict of interest. And there are nuances to being a podcaster um, and doing something that, you know, manufacturing something and selling it and using your platform to do that, that I think um, highlights, I think, the big difference in in the platforms and in like the functions of what we do and how how we do what we do. Um, not to say that one is better than the other, but I do think that's really that the power of media is is a big part of this story too that I find so interesting. Like if you if you wanted to, you could just mention the pasta in every single episode of your show going forward until the end of time. That's fascinating. Right. And then the money would go to you um, <laughs> right. until and you sell it. So I should say like technically I'm not an independent podcaster. I produce the podcast with Stitcher and they're owned by Sirius XM now. You make a really good point about journalism, Soleil, which is that like I used to be at WNYC, New York Public Radio, and that was there were more restrictions. I don't know that I would have been able to do this project when I was there. Um, the truth is there are not that many restrictions, official company restrictions on, you know, in terms of like political activity or sort of classic journalist style restrictions. There are certain journalistic policies that we choose to uphold when we do this work full because it's important to me to maintain that credibility with our audience. So we do mm -hmm. a certain amount of fact checking. We um, confirm things with guests. We will, in some situations, give somebody an opportunity to respond uh, or, or give us a comment or something, you know, which, um, um, again, it, it's less about sort of following a company policy and more just about like, doing that because I think it burnishes our credibility with our audience. And so for the same reason, I would not promote my pasta shape in every single episode ever because I think it would get annoying. <laughs> and <laughs> as, a, as a listener, I would resent that. If, I, if, that, if that was my favorite podcast and suddenly like the guy turned into a shill for his thing and that's all he ever did, I'd be like, screw this. So, you know, it's about finding a balance. Like, yes, I'm sure I will use this Borkful podcast in the future as I have in the past to help spread the word about the pasta shape. But I also... I mean, I'm also excited that the pasta shape will bring people to the sporkful because that's my original baby mm. is the podcast. And as I said, like I think of myself as an audio person first. And so I take real pride in the quality of our podcast. And so if people hear about the pasta shape and it gets them to listen to the series that tells the story and brings people in, like that's exciting to me too. Um, and so, yeah, like there's a nice... I mean, I was going to say synergy, but that's such a corny corporate word uh, <laughs> to it, um, you know, for sure. But, you know, but but I, I don't envision a day in which where the Sporkful podcast just becomes a Cascatelli infomercial. <laughs> uh, 
Um, we've done a couple episodes since the series, so. and and only with scant mention of the pasta. If we were to make an extra spicy product of some kind, right? What do you think? What what, what would our logo look I great mean, on? Come on, Dan, give give us something it, good, it, man. Is, is hot sauce too on the nose? I mean, uh, <laughs> I are you familiar with Amsam? Yeah. So I love mm. everything there about. Amsam, there it's these um, sisters who run this. I mean, you could probably explain it better than I do, but it's sort of like prepackaged sauces for a variety of different classic Asian cuisine dishes. Yeah. So Justin, Amsam is like Asian American hamburger helper, but cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so Lay, Lay I mean, that was a much better description than mine. <laughs> I think that you should collaborate with them, and I think mm, that you should okay. get you Damn. should have uh, work with them to develop some kind of very spicy uh sauce for a specific dish um and you know as i learned in my journey you want to partner with someone who already knows that who has some expertise to make the thing and has the equipment and has the production because you don't want to start messing with that so so find someone cool to partner with and then you'll be killing it that's awesome. awesome. So just just so we're all clear, I've already put in my two weeks notice, Soleil, because this is clearly going to be a hit for us. <laughs> this, is my, this, this is my second act, by the way. <laughs> well, we'll take that idea under advisement, Dan. There Thank you, you. Thank you so much for joining us. And this if listeners awesome. want to find your stuff, where do they go? Um, check out the Sporkful podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you can check out the pasta shape. It's sold through Sfolini. It's S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks Thanks to both of you. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks again to Dan Pashman for being in conversation with us and to Taya Francesca Price for producing and editing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food life or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.